this episode has a language warning because things get a little bit colourful at times. In this podcast, we're taking a dive into the lives of dangerous women of Queensland. And we're not talking about serial killers here. We're talking about strong, fascinating women who forged their way through life with boldness, daring and courage and challenged the status quo to inspire change in Queensland. Women I would like to be more like myself. Dangerous Women is a podcast by the State Library of Queensland, hosted by myself, Holly's Wolf, produced by Snuggletooth Productions and supported by the Queensland Library Foundation's crowd-giving fundraising campaign. Join us as we tell the stories of some of the greatest Queensland women you've never heard of. Our final Dangerous Woman in this series has made me rethink the way I introduced this podcast. Debbie Kilroy may not be a serial killer, but some of her best friends are murderers, and she's done time herself for drug trafficking. These days, she's a criminal lawyer with a twist. She doesn't believe in jails and her life's fight is dedicated to bringing down the prison system and the industries that rely on it for profit. Be prepared to have your convictions shaken with this one. I fundamentally believe, like, I won't be free until all women are free. That's just the reality, and there's a lot of work to be done. I've never met a more hard-working woman than Debbie. She's the driving force behind Sisters Inside, a Queensland-based organisation that provides services and advocates for women in prison and their families. For nearly 30 years, she's campaigned relentlessly for the rights of women prisoners, alongside advocates such as renowned American civil rights activist Angela Davis. She's been awarded the Order of Australia, and most sensationalist of all, she's the first convicted criminal to be accepted by the Queensland Supreme Court as a solicitor, and she's deeply unimpressed by our criminal justice system. If you go to prison because you're poor, because you're homeless, because your country was invaded, your land was stolen, you've had so much violence perpetrated against you, and I do a little program, a cog skills program, and I still walk out, I still don't have my land, I still don't have a home, I still don't have money, I don't have my kids, you've taken them now. You know, like, hello, that's not my fault. But the state makes us feel so hyper-responsible that it's my fault that these things are happening to me. You know, they say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, if I've got no fucking boots, how do I pull them up? Like, it's bullshit. Absolute bullshit. I know I said I felt safe meeting her, but if I'm honest, I'm actually absolutely terrified. She's a feisty as hell woman and she's hard to impress. So I've asked Chris Olsen, an old friend of Debbie's, who sat on the Sisters Inside Management Committee for over 20 years and who is also the author of Debbie's biography Kilroy Was Here, if we can meet her first, so I can get some tips. Hello. Hi, Chris, it's Holly. Hi, Holly, come on in. Thank you. For the time being, sprawled on the couch in Chris's flat, surrounded by books stacked on every single surface, while the wind beats against the hanging plants on the veranda outside, I allow myself to feel reassured. Are we recording? Great. So the reason I wanted to do it here is because I'm absolutely terrified of Debbie. <laughs> you don't need to be. That's a public face, absolutely. And it's got more and more terrifying by the year. Yes. So I kind of wanted to meet you first to, like, get the lowdown. Now, look, in, in these kinds of situations, she's, um, I was going to say normal, she's, <laughs> she's not that fierce person she's got to be in prison surroundings. She's just ordinary. 
Except she's got this fierce intelligence sitting behind everything she says. I asked Chris if she was nervous the first time she met Debbie, back when she first got involved in Sisters Inside. I kind of feel like that's when I was born. (laughs) That's when I actually emerged into the world. The scales dropped from my eyes. This huge learning curve was just quite amazing. From the warm way Chris talks about Sisters, I get the impression that it's more than just a workplace. Sisters Inside is different to other organisations that support women in prison. For starters, it operates on a peer-led basis. The steering committee meets behind bars and consists entirely of women who are currently in prison. And this really sets the tone of the organisation. And that was always Debbie's insistence. You know, as a management committee, we were there to listen and do what we were told. We're not the ones who know. We don't have the lived prison experience. Other people do, and they know what's needed. I'm going to play around with time for a moment here and fast forward to my interview with Debbie because the way she describes the ethos of Sisters Inside ties in nicely with what Chris is explaining to me. It's a very different way of doing things. It's a very different way of being and walking with, truly with and alongside criminalised and imprisoned women and girls and their children. There's no other organisation like Sisters Inside in the world and it's about our values and about how we drive them and about building up that community for all women It doesn't matter what they've done or what they haven't done. It's about the actual person, not the behaviour. We'll hear more from Debbie in just a tick. Back in Chris's lounge, I ask her whether she ever feels like a bit of a square working with such a tough bunch of women. She tells me about what happened when she attended her first steering committee meeting inside prison. I knew that being the new management person, they'd have to, you know, size me up. I was, I was terrified the first day I went in to the meeting room. It was so funny. And because Fred really did. She's one of my best friends now, but at the time I was terrified. Of course, it's Tracy Wiggins, she's a big girl in every way, big personality. And she literally walked around me. And then they knew I'd been a journalist. And of course, with Tracy, that's a big no-no. Journalists have ruined her life, you know. And I went, sort of swallowed hard. <laughs> anyway, she just, you know, sort of, sat and listened for a while at the end of it she said so Clark Kent you're all right. Tracy Wigington or Fred to her closer friends is known widely as the lesbian vampire killer for the murder of a man in Brisbane in 1989 an event which was greatly sensationalized by the media. But yes so what was it like for you as someone who's never been inside um going inside the first time? Well I felt like a complete junior at first because I knew nothing. I didn't know the background to why women were in prison, who was in prison. I had the same cardboard cutout view that most people would have, I suppose. I pressed Chris further. I want to know what it feels like as a visitor to hear that gate clang shut behind you. Forbidding. It's forbidding, really. And even though, you know, you're dying to see the women, you can't wait to see them, you haven't seen them for a while, you're still thinking, OK, it won't be long and I'll be out the other side again. It's... It's got that certainly that authoritarian feel of Dostoevsky's novels and that really that really feeling that feeling of darkness and of and the opposite of freedom, of course. It makes you feel very lucky to be born in the way you were, grow up in the way you did, without the terrible shackles that some of these women are born to, or disadvantaged, violent homes, violent partners. Um, you know, they're, yeah, of course, they're the ones who are pipelined in because they're the ones having to do extraordinary things to survive. I asked Chris how visiting prisoners has changed her. In a way, it was a dismantling of self, you know, that the old me who 
could look at a prison in one way and think of the people inside it one way, fell away and, yeah, it's, you know, almost like being burnt in the fire, you know, coming out as another person and coming out as fierce and pissed off and angry and just really disposed to work on it. How long do you think you're going to stay with sisters inside? You don't leave. <laughs> you don't. You know, they'll all be at my funeral. The sky grows dark outside and rain starts lashing the already battered trees. The moody weather gives me a false sense of confidentiality, despite the enormous fairy microphone looming near my mouth. I find myself admitting something I perhaps shouldn't. And Debbie sounds like, you know, between us, she sounds like she was a pain in the ass when she was younger. Some people would say she still is. By this, Chris, of course, means that Debbie never compromises her values and never lets up. She thinks, breathes, eats 24-7 prison issues. That last big campaign, the Free Her campaign, is a really good example of that. There she was on a Sunday afternoon at home flicking through Instagram, I think it was, and something came up with an Aboriginal dancer. It was a male, actually, being pulled off a beach because he hadn't paid some historical fine. She got onto that straight away, bang. Within a week, there was just tens of thousands of dollars. The Free Her campaign has so far raised over a million dollars to pay women's bail costs in Western Australia, where women are routinely jailed for unpaid fines. You can find it on the GoFundMe page if you're interested. Not for her, the Sunday afternoon, just lying in the sun, hanging out, going to a movie. Movie? Why would I go to a movie? That's who she is. There's a strange synchronicity to interviewing Chris in this final episode of Dangerous Women because although her name doesn't appear on it, she also ghostwrote Keelan Mailman's autobiography, The Power of Bones. Keelan was the subject of our first episode in this series. So either Chris has a knack for unearthing dangerous women or we have a knack for pinching all of her brilliant and very helpful research. The first and the last are about people that you've written books about. It must be a bit dangerous myself. It is funny, isn't it? When they sent me the list of people, I, I noticed that, yes, there was this funny coincidence, this rainbow from first to last. They're both such extraordinary women and both so warm and inclusive and clever, super intelligent, both of them. The rainbow metaphor is quite apt, actually, because it's absolutely bucketing down outside now. One thing I've loved about making this podcast is all the other dangerous women who have met along the way. So just before I go, I asked Chris if she'd describe herself as a dangerous woman. I know I certainly would. These days I probably would. And that's in no small part due to those other women who, you know, shared their predilection for the dangerous with me, I guess, and showed me what was to be gained by living in that way. I mean, I think Sisters particularly um, has made me fearless, you can't really be in that organisation and see what you see and do what you do and be scared. Of course, it makes you look at your own privilege very carefully. But it also, as for me anyway, it's made me fearless. And it's really taught me to stand up to anyone, but especially to stand up to power. And would she describe Debbie as dangerous? She's dangerous in all the right ways. And on that note, it's time for me to toughen up and go meet the famous DK myself. On the drive from Chris's flat to the Sisters Inside office in West End, my producer Erin and I take a brief detour past the filthy student share house where we first met 
many years ago. We're just driving down the main street in West End on our way to Sisters Inside to interview Debbie Kilroy. And we're doing a quick detour because this is where Erin and I um, first met in this area. And we're just going to drive down the street to find our old share house that we lived in. God, there it is. There it is. It's Although, actually, now I'm looking at it again. Maybe it's not the same building. Uh, yeah, that looks a little bit fancier than what we lived in. <laughs> We've got the wrong house. Or <laughs> well, the house that we lived in has been knocked down. I think it probably fell down. It was such a mess. <laughs> this little trip down memory lane has been a pleasant distraction from the impending interviews. Outside Sisters Inside, I scoff down a vegan meat pie before ringing the bell. Just trying to brush the pie crumbs off my face so I look presentable. Of course, Netta Ree, who's the youth programs manager at Sisters and who I've arranged to interview after Debbie, flings open the door at that very moment to find me loitering there, looks at me like I'm mad and asks me if I'm going to come in. Erin and I sit in reception like nervous girls outside the principal's office as we wait for Debbie to get off the phone with the courts. Eventually she bustles in and ushers us through a doorway. Hello, come in, sorry. We sit down at one end of a long meeting table and I get down to business. First up, I get Debbie to explain what exactly Sisters Inside does. At its core, the organisation operates on a decarceration strategy to get women out and keep them out of prison. They achieve this through service provision, community education training, advocacy and law reform, and also through Debbie's legal firm, which operates out of the same building as Sisters. So that's sort of in a nutshell. And how do you manage to house a nutshell inside you? Because that's a really big nutshell. Um, I don't know, I just do. I've been doing it for so long. It's just, it is who I am. It's my passion. One of the driving forces behind Sisters Inside is the damage incarceration does to families, as well as the cycle of incarceration it encourages. And Debbie's family is no exception. While Debbie and her partner Joe were in prison on drug charges, the couple separated, the family was torn apart, and the kids were split up and cared for in different places. More recently, her eldest child has spent time in prison herself for fraud. This cycle of incarceration is a recurring theme in families where a parent has been in prison, and the evidence is clear. Prison harms entire families, and the effects are far-reaching. However, one surprising outcome of Debbie and Joe's time inside was that it forced them to reevaluate their relationship. So we negotiated the relationship and, um, you know, the biggest thing was because of Joshua. By that time, Jodie had already taken off and been getting criminalised as a um, young woman. So, But more for Joshua, we didn't want that for Joshua, so um, we've actually got to work this out for him. Debbie met Joe Kilroy when she was in her early 20s. In his heyday as a famous football player with the Brisbane Broncos, he was known as Smokin' Joe Kilroy. Joe's a bachelor man and traditional owner of Gari, otherwise known as Fraser Island. The couple have one child together, and he's also raised Debbie's older daughter as his own. In the early years, their relationship was volatile and violent, and the two got mixed up in some pretty bad business that led to them both being imprisoned. But surprisingly, the couple swear that prison saved their relationship by helping them to recognise the importance of family. And the biggest rule was there's no violence. If there's any violence, we're done. That's it. And so there never has been any violence ever since. I say something to the effect that it's a beautiful love story, but Debbie isn't sentimental. 
well, you know, they're ups and downs and rounds and rounds. They're hard work, but you've got to do the work. It's about relationships, any type of relationship. And, you know, and it's about um, being okay under my own skin, him being okay under his skin and then us being okay together. As she talks, Debbie flicks her hand around gesturing. It isn't immediately noticeable, but her ring finger is missing on her left hand. I've already read her book, so I know she lost it when her wedding ring got caught during a particularly big blue with Joe. But I ask her to tell me what it feels like when she looks at it now. Not much. It's been there for like 32 years now. So, um, I don't know, it's just part of being now. I try and press her for some kind of significant revelation that the gap in her hand represents. But in what I'm starting to recognise as typical Debbie fashion, she isn't coming to the party. Yeah, but it wasn't the point that that created any significant change for no. me other than a physical change with my fingers gone. But, I mean, you know, if there was a, a point that sort of shifted anything was probably Debbie's murder and thinking, fuck, there's got to be something better than this shit, really. We'll get to the murder in a minute. First, I asked Debbie to go back to her childhood so I can try and understand how she ended up the person she is today. The tale begins with Debbie as a young kid who found it hard to concentrate in school. Some of the teachers couldn't engage me because I'd be like, you know, bouncing. I'm one of those kids that would be moving all the time. Like, as you can tell, I still move around. (laughs) It's true. She hasn't stopped fidgeting since we started the interview. But we've done our best to edit out all the chair creaks as she squirms around opposite me. Because you can't sit still, you get the troublemaker card or, you know, lax concentration, all that sort of shit. It's like, no, you're just a bad teacher and doesn't know how to engage in other forms of learning, you know. So I'd be kicked out to the principal's office and have a desk there and I did, wasn't going to sit there. So then we'd take off and go down to the, um, you know, the Valley Leisure Centre and play pool and listen to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. Debbie started getting into trouble for petty crime and her parents began to feel they were losing control of her. So at that time, policing was expanding where they had um, the Juvenile Aid Bureau and social workers, the so-called social workers. So anyway, um, so they convinced Dad to sign me away to go into the youth prison for one month to get assessed by psychiatrists and because, you know, it had teach me a lesson. It didn't teach me the lesson that the adults thought were going to teach me, no doubt, was going to violate me and try and hammer me down and dampened my spirit but I just kicked harder so after the four weeks I was told I couldn't go home to my parents that I had to go to like this halfway house at um, Kelvin Grove so things just went pear-shaped from there mum and dad hadn't done anything wrong I was one of the kids that grew up at a home there where there wasn't any violence I was really lucky compared to the majority of other women that I know and continue to know that you know the most horrendous things have happened under their roofs but they didn't happen the violation that happened to me was in that youth prison and then ongoing. So I was in and out, in and out, and in and out. And um, yeah, just on that slippery slope of being criminalised over and over again. I asked Debbie what she thinks would have led her down a different path back then. If I was 13 and wasn't put in prison, what would have happened? And I think many things wouldn't have happened, but they did happen. So to survive, well, I think to come out of the other side, you know, your life becomes a story of trauma that's... um, especially when you're criminalised in prison, that are layers of trauma. There's a common pattern when you look at the backgrounds of women in prison. There's a disproportionately high rate of prisoners with ADHD, but most significantly, most women have a history of sexual abuse or assault. We know that 
from our own research, 89% of women who are in prison have been previously sexually assaulted or raped. And as Debbie says, once these women get to prison, the sexual assault continues under the guise of mandatory strip searching, which she argues is state-sanctioned sexual assault and is used as a form of social control. A lot of women say that they, you know, the violence ends because they go into prison and so they feel safe, but that's because they're not aware of the new violator. Then the sexual assault continues in the prison by the state in the form of strip searching. So that's where the state takes over the perpetrator's role of the individual that has sexually abused that woman. So through the process of strip searching where they say in the law it's lawful, so it allows prison officers to action a sexual assault but lawfully and women describe it as being sexually assaulted again. It's not surprising that women who've had these kinds of experiences in life end up in prison and it's even less surprising, considering the way women are treated in prison, that over 40% of women inmates will be back behind bars within two years of release. Debbie was looking like she'd be yet another of these statistics when she was witness to the murder of her close friend Debbie Dick while serving time on drug charges. Debbie Kilroy was also stabbed and originally planned to murder in revenge. However, the event ended up being a major turning point in her life when she heard the inmate who'd murdered her friend screaming while locked up in solitary confinement. Oh, yeah, because I remember being in solitary like her as a kid. That was like me being held up in that cell like she was being held up. It's like, let her out. You've got to let her out. This is cruelty, yeah. This was a pivotal point for her. She started to make the connections between her own experiences in the system as a young woman and those of her friend's murderer and realised they were both victims of the same oppressive system. Instead of seeking revenge on the woman who'd murdered her friend, after Debbie was released from prison, she set up Sisters Inside. That was nearly 30 years ago now. She then went on to get a social work degree before taking on the big guns and getting herself admitted as a lawyer. I asked Debbie what drove her to do law. I was doing it to push the system out, yeah. to make it accountable, make it honest because of the language that it uses, that it used. Obviously part of it was for me because I was told as a kid that I was stupid, I'd never make anything of myself, I'm bad, you can't do it, only certain people can be lawyers and doctors. And then I realised that is just the biggest load of shit, absolute rubbish. That is such a white privilege secret that they market, that they think that they're the only ones that actually can get through law degrees or medical degrees. I studied law myself back when I was living in that filthy share house with Erin. And it turns out Debbie and I have something else in common too. We both failed contract law B. I hated contract law. However, unlike Debbie, I actually failed it three times and then got kicked out of uni. I ended up studying poetry instead. I asked her how it felt to be admitted to the bar. Oh, it was good. I was, it was whispered in my ear that two people weren't going to get admitted and they were worried that, uh, that it might have been me. And I was like, oh, well, whatever. That'll just be another fight. I don't care. Because that was the whole point. If I didn't get admitted, it's like, you just want to keep saying we go to prison to be rehabilitated. Well, I want to know when I'm so-called rehabilitated. You want to use that language at me? Then prove it. So that was the thing, but it wasn't me. So, yeah, that was great. It was, yeah, it was awesome. I had a lot of support, had done a lot of work, you know, like and been moving forward. And it was time that the system actually opened its door to say, well, okay, we keep saying rehabilitation. We've actually got to walk our talk in this small instance. I optimistically asked Debbie about rehabilitation. Surely I think this is where prisons are failing. Well, I don't believe in rehabilitation. 
Right, now I feel a little bit silly. I refuse to agree that making women, girls, hyper-responsible for how their lives are when the state is absolutely responsible. You know, the invasion of this country, the stolen land, not providing affordable housing or any other services that women need to survive in the free world. And then if they are criminalised and imprisoned, that then they become hyper-responsible to fix that up. And if you can't fix it up, then you're never going to fix it up. So you're that ongoing failure and take full responsibility of that and just it actually like is more layers of trauma because you can't get it done no matter how hard you try because you don't have the resources because the state hasn't provided the resources. I ask her what the solution is then. I'm expecting something about better rehabilitation programs in the jails, but again, I'm left feeling very naive. If you don't give back land to Aboriginal people, if you don't have a house, you know, if we don't have all these things. So your little pissy program that your little psych developed it don't mean nothing. They can come, they can go, these programs. They really don't matter. So the system doesn't work, the system is broken. People say that. I think the system works fucking brilliantly because of the way that it's been established and maintained and propped up and it's not accountable and it's not transparent and they just can say, the cops can say, prison can say, at any time we're going on strike unless you give us more money and the state responds and billions and billions of dollars are poured down the throat of all these policing and punishment models without any ounce of accountability or transparency. Debbie here is describing the prison industrial complex, the structures and systems that act to control, surveil, police and imprison people. And as she warns, the prison industrial complex is growing because corporations make good money out of people being criminalised and imprisoned. They investigate themselves. Black deaths in custody, anything that happens, they investigate themselves. Well, we know what the answer's going to be. They've done nothing wrong. Pat on the head and off you go. Now, I'm not suggesting that people need to be held accountable and criminalised in prison because I'm a prison abolitionist, but that's where it gets very blurry around a conversation about we want justice. So people, are once again, because of the subconscious landscape, thinking of prison all the time, justice actually means prison, where justice for me doesn't mean prison. And so we've got to find other models of justice. We keep saying we want justice, we want justice, we want justice. It is a legal system, it is not a justice system. If you want justice, you do not enter the doors of the cop station or the courthouse. So what does justice mean to her? Justice for me looks like where we can actually have a community where we address violence in that community to reduce the violence and to be able to have conversations about that and how we deal with the violence that's in our community. I ask her why there are such high rates of reoffending and released prisoners, but immediately realise I've asked her the wrong question. Well, people get recriminalised. I don't call it reoffending because that, once again, is taking on the prison industrial complex's language about that we are responsible for our own criminalisation. We are criminalised because of the way that laws are enacted and why they're enacted. So begging never used to be a crime. It's a crime now. You know, being homeless, being on the street, colliding with police, you get criminalised, you're in prison. But people say it's your fault. Like in prison, you'll be given, you know, could be given 10 phone numbers to ring and find accommodation. If you can't find the accommodation, I as the individual feel just smashed because I'm hyper-responsible because I can't find myself a home and it's my fault. Where the reality is it's the state's fault. They have not provided enough accommodation. But it's about how it's flipped. So when we say someone's released and what's the recidivist rate or they re-offend... It's actually people come out of prison, you know, and why didn't they do the programs in prison or if they did the programs, quote, in prison, why haven't they rehabilitated themselves? It seems pretty clear to me then that people are being set up to fail. 
you know, I use the um, analogy is that we all know that drinking eight glasses of water a day is really good for us. Have you drank eight glasses of water today? No? One? I think I've drunk a couple. But I mean, but we expect women to do backflips in their lives in a short period of time where we can't even stick to one rule of eight glasses of water a day, you know? So yeah, go figure. So stop blaming women. At the crux of her argument, Debbie doesn't believe in jails. She's spent a lot of time in them herself and she's seen firsthand the damage they do to families and also their ineffectiveness in either preventing crime or helping people's lives to move in different directions. Debbie herself admits that prison abolition is not something she expects to see in her own lifetime, though ironically during the first wave of the COVID pandemic, there was a brief decrease in incarceration rates when they avoided imprisoning women who were waiting for court hearings in an attempt to lower the risk of COVID being brought into jails. Not that Debbie thinks COVID is in any way positive, of course. It's being used to stigmatise again and bolster up again and and stir up again the racism in this country against people of colour, you know, black people, African people, poor people, uh, and now more recently black women, young women. Thanks to COVID, this is actually our second attempt at an interview with Debbie. A week earlier, I'd come down with a cold, the same day that my producer Erin had been informed that she'd visited a cafe that had had a confirmed case. So we'd had to call it all off. Speaking of COVID, Netta re-walks in at this point, which is timely considering that she and Debbie were some of the earliest cases of COVID in Queensland. Though I beat them in that race, I was the 15th. They contracted the virus after sharing a flight with Peter Dutton, the Minister for Affairs, and we're not suggesting anything at all by that statement. Yeah, that's her claim to fame. (laughs) Netta Ree's been with the organisation for 10 years now and is almost as busy as Debbie, not to mention being mum to a gorgeous three-year-old. Straight up, she talks about the success of the various programs she runs, particularly the Cultural Healing Program for Young Women. Every holiday we have a, a cultural healing camp and we invite girls to come and it's a very specific designed program to, to support the girls and to, to do healing work and to teach and to do all the things that are beneficial for self-esteem, cultural connection, healing um, and understanding generational trauma. And that's what it's based around is actually understanding what that is and unpacking that and so they can learn why they ended up where they are and that it's not their fault at all. It's actually what's happened before them and around them and to them. There's cultural aspects of it where we do like um, traditional weaving, so many different things put together specifically and designed specifically for them to move through whatever it is that they need to and to learn and heal and every single girl that's been on those camps has not entered back into prison. That's a really impressive outcome. I'm feeling pretty in awe of Nidari, so I'm delighted when she says she's nervous. This seems to be a recurring theme in this episode. However, I'm disappointed to learn that she's not nervous about my commandeering presence and my biting interview questions, but about an appointment she has with her dentist. Netari Marbo is an activist, an artist, and, you guessed it, is also the renowned land rights activist Eddie Marbo's granddaughter. Seeing as she has to leave soon, I decide to launch straight into talking about race. Debbie and I are both white, but all of us are parents to black kids, and particularly in light of the recent Black Lives Matter events, protecting our kids from racism and racial profiling from the police is paramount in all our thoughts. 
Yeah, it's difficult, I think, because of the racism, and I think it's more difficult as a being a white mother of Aboriginal children. Um, so that struggle that I've had with all my life, having Aboriginal and South Sea Island children, and in regards to their safety, because I've always had a position of privilege because I am white, and they haven't. And so seeing that struggle is really gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. And I think even um, now, again, with Pipey, my granddaughter, Nettery's daughter, you know, coming back from kindy just up the road there the other day saying that she wanted to be grey and doesn't want to be black and she's three. And so it started and that was one of the things that we wanted to protect her from. But I mean, we physically can't protect her or anyone else from the racism and the harm that that's going to bring and that's a sense of absolute powerlessness that I feel. and. You know, Nettery can talk about how she feels, but I mean, I just get really angry, really disturbed, really traumatised and want to go on the attack, but I'm trying to find other ways as well. And what Black Lives Matter has, I suppose, given us is a springboard in a way, in a point of time of history, that the agenda is fair and square there, right before our faces. Nettery's nodding soberly next to her. You think that you do all the right things that's going to protect your children. Before she was born, I made sure that every book that was going to be on her shelves were going to have black characters. They were going to be centred around black people and black dolls, black everything, to make sure that she felt like that she was the centre of the universe. She was, you know, she was represented everywhere she could see. She was everything but yeah she's only three years old and that experience already is like happening and her not feeling like not liking her eye color because they're not blue and not and which is crazy because she's only three years old and she's already we've already had to like talk about skin color and get her to be proud of that even though she is surrounded by so many people that are pro-black you know and supportive so it was really really hard and I was thinking yeah maybe I'm gonna have to deal with it when she's like gets to school but it already happened and I was so devastated and it was all around the Black Lives Matter movement too everything that was happening it was like very traumatic it was just hard. In our planning for this episode the State Library has noted the lack of Black Lives Matter content in their collection so I'm glad this episode will at least make a start in addressing the need to fill that gap. Nettery's feelings about the movement mixed. It felt like we've been fighting for our lives forever, for my whole life. Now people are talking about it. The march was great and everybody came to support, but then then following it was like, oh, no one cares again. And that was really, really disappointing and like traumatising as well because it was, well, it's only because it was a trend or because it was happening there in America that it's like something that people here are going to worry about. And no one really cared that the day of and the day after those numbers had changed, how many black de- like deaths in custody there were. No one cared. And uh, it just, it's terrifying and sad to think that my daughter's going to grow in a world that's still going to be like this. And no one, you know, if it's trending, she's going to matter. And that's it. Indigenous people are disproportionately represented in Australian prisons and Sisters Inside puts a large focus on this, particularly through the programs they run with Indigenous inmates. I think it's pretty well known. It's just under 35% of people in our 
prisons across the country, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And, you know, I think the general population of First Nations people is about 3%. So uh, we criminalise and imprison Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at a much greater rate. Um, and that comes fundamentally from the invasion of this country and the ongoing genocide project of the state. So we're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at pipeline to into many carceral mechanisms and finally the last one being the prison system. The disproportionate amount of black people in custody is due at least in part to racial profiling, which as Netta Ree describes, starts very young. Young women that I support and you know, walk with every single day and they talk about their experience. Not long ago, one day they counted how many times that they were pulled up by the cops to do a street check. It was over 10 times and they were just like hanging out in the city and doing nothing, nothing wrong, just what other kids their age would be doing. Shopping while black. Yeah. Being in a public space while black. And one of the girls were sleeping over the other girls and they had like some stuff in their bag and then they had to were asked to prove that that was their stuff. Like, is this what my daughter's going to have to experience when she goes shopping? It scares me. Speaking of scared, Nedari pops out briefly to take something to calm her down before the dentist. I sit nervously with Debbie, quietly sipping my water. When she returns, I ask her about when she first met Debbie. She was very scary when I first met her. <laughs> What do you think of Deb now? Well, she's like a second mother to me, <laughs> my chosen mum. Yeah, she's not just my boss. She's lots of things. I think I probably wouldn't be here, obviously, if it wasn't for her. But, I mean, like, I don't think that I would – life could have been a little bit different without her and without her saying, come and work and do admin with me for a second. <laughs> Nedaree's life has actually been pretty damn impressive so far. As well as working at Sisters, she's got a degree, is an acclaimed artist, and she even designed the commemorative 50-cent piece for the 25th anniversary of the Marbo High Court decision. How cool is that? I ask her whether she'd describe Debbie as a dangerous woman. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> she makes lots of scary people cower. <laughs> In a good way. But I think that's through her honesty and her transparency and her integrity. And I think that not many people are like that. And so I think that's what people fear the most and makes her dangerous. Nidori stands up to go to the dentist with a look of terror on her face. So I quickly squeeze in asking Debbie whether she thinks Nidori is a dangerous woman so she can hear the answer just before she leaves. Yeah, I would describe Nidori as a dangerous woman. Like... Um, she challenges and every day more and more challenges the status quo, which is wonderful. And with Nedari and her voice now, and people are listening. So in her role and coming into her own as a strong black woman, people are listening and being challenged with what she's actually saying and can hear her. So she's not a black woman that's been pushed to the margins like the power usually does to watch Nedari grow into that and own that to be a dangerous woman has been very powerful and beautiful to see and experience alongside her. On that happy note, Nedari skulks off to visit the dentist and Debbie and I are left alone. Other than Erin, of course, who's lurking in the corner eavesdropping on us through her giant headphones. I asked Debbie how she feels about being called a dangerous woman. 
I suppose what I was thinking is that um, I think there's lots of dangerous women. I'm not the only one. And so um, when all of us dangerous women join together, um, the impact that we can make would be so powerful. So no, I'm happy to be a dangerous woman and I'll continue to be a dangerous woman in that context for sure. And I ain't taking a step back. <laughs> Ever. Ever. <laughs> Debbie's got to get going herself in a minute to go pick up Nedaree's daughter. So just before she goes, I try one more time for a sentimental, weighty kind of comment to end this podcast on. I ask her what she's most proud of in her life. But in typical DK style, she doesn't give me what I want. I don't know. I don't think in, in that way that I'm proud of something that I've done because that's very individualised for me. So I don't, I don't actually know what the answer is because I don't think like that, what I'm proud of. I do what I do for the women that I'm here for. So to think about am I proud of something, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that question, to be honest. Debbie's life exhausts me. The ridiculously busy schedule, the tireless work, the constant never-ending struggle and the amount of different balls she has up in the air at any one point. I used to knit and crochet in prison. I don't need to knit and crochet out here. But her life also inspires me. Not in the virtuous and slightly insipid way that you might expect, that you can achieve a lot from nothing and to never give up on yourself. No, mostly Debbie inspires me to be less afraid, to be less deferential to power, to be bold enough to disagree, to push my point further when I feel it's not being heard, but most importantly, to speak to those who hold the power confidently as their equals. Not that I've quite managed that today. I've been a total wimp, really. I tell Debbie how impressed I was watching a video of her bowling up to a politician at a meet and greet drinks event, ignoring his ear off about prison reform. Yeah, well, they invite you to these things and make it that they're events to allow you to have access to talk. It's like, well, I actually want to talk to you, so I can talk. Don't invite me here if you think I'm just going to sit here and drink your piss and not have a conversation. I'm not here for, to drink the piss. I'm here to actually have a conversation with you. Talking with Debbie today has reminded me that we are all equals, or at least we should be, whether we're a doctor or whether we're a drug dealer, whether we're a white man in a wig or a black woman with seven kids. Whether we wear a suit or have bare feet, whether we're behind bars or walking freely down the street. Debbie rushes off to pick up Pipey, who she views as her granddaughter, and I walk down the steps of Sisters Inside, feeling relieved at being back outside. I've survived interviewing the great Debbie Kilroy without being eaten alive. I've learned a lot from Debbie today, and although I generally think of myself as a pretty progressive thinker, at times, she's made me feel damn right conservative. I don't know if I can quite envisage a world without prisons the way that Debbie does. But while she doesn't necessarily say she has all the answers, like a true dangerous woman, she definitely asks the right questions. This is our last interview for the Dangerous Women series, and I can't help but think that the last thing Debbie said to me before she raced out should be a rallying call, not just to myself, but to all women listening. Well, we've got to where we are now because of a number of dangerous women. There's lots of dangerous women, not just one. The other four dangerous women you've got in this series come from very different walks of life that have opened up many other areas for women for decades. But we need more dangerous women and to scare the shit out of patriarchy.
The State Library of Queensland would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands this series was recorded and produced on, including the nations of Yugara, Turrbal, Yugambeh, Jinnabara, Bidjara, Yudinji, Irakanji, and the Godigal. This episode was recorded and produced by Erin McBean, sound designed by Patty Priest, and mixed by Simon Berkelman. 